Friends of the Knox County Public Library, Union Ave Books, the Knox County Public Library, and the East Tennessee Historical Society present an evening with award-winning author Nathaniel Philbrick discussing his book, Valiant Ambition, George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the Fate of the American Revolution. The audio quality improves about three minutes into this recording. Thank you. There's some water here on the podium. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, it is really great to be here in Knoxville. This is my first time here. I spent the afternoon wandering around, made it down to the waterfront. Didn't realize I had quite the vertical walk back up, but I made it. It's a little warm. But, uh, and hey, you're named for Henry Knox, right? Right. Hey, you know, a great general, but originally a bookseller. So go Union Books. And uh, so anyways, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. And this book, uh, Valiant Ambition, really began for me 31 years ago uh, when I moved to Nantucket Island, of all places, with my wife and our then two young children. I was an English major and a sailing journalist at the time. Uh, Moby Dick was my personal Bible, and I was very excited to be uh, going to the port of the Pequod and became quickly fascinated with the history of how Nantucket became the whaling capital of the world and began to research what would eventually be my first work of history away offshore. And it was while researching that that I came across one of the great books written in the 18th century about America, Hector Saint-Jean de Crevecourt's Letters from an American Farmer. It is an absolute classic, 12 letters, uh, and Crevecourt traveled all over the U.S., and these letters chronicle his travels. Uh, three of them are about Nantucket, and that's why I was reading them. And Crevecourt was an interesting guy. He uh, grew up in petty nobility uh, in France, fought in the French and Indian War on the side of France, but through circumstances that are hard to trace, suddenly ends up on the Hudson River, owning a farm, married to a local girl, uh, living what he considered the ultimate dream. He fell in love with America. This was a place unlike anything he'd ever experienced. Uh, people from any country, any background, could come to America and make a new life for themselves. He famously asks, what is this American, this new man? This is a love letter to colonial North America until the final letter. His utopia has been destroyed by the outbreak of the American Revolution. Now, suddenly the Committee of Safety moves in. There is the, pass the Declaration of Independence. And Crevecourt goes, wait a minute, which means, by the way, in French, uh, broken heart. Um, uh, and he says, well, you know, why are we having a revolution? We are the freest, most prosperous people in the world. I know. What's going on here? The Committee of Safety comes in, that patriot hardliners, and they begin to question every landowner uh, with loyalty oaths. And Crevecourt says, I don't know. I mean, I'm just happy with things. Uh, what, why do you want me to disavow the king? Uh, you know, what's going on here? Ultimately, he and many of his fellow landowners is hounded out of what's now Chester, New York, on the west banks of the 
Hudson. I mean, and what's happening is he's seeing a civil war break out around him. Uh, across, uh, up and down uh, the Hudson, the British have occupied New York. It's turned into uh, where gangs of loyalists who call themselves cowboys uh, battle it out with gangs of patriots who call themselves skinners. Uh, returning to their uh, uh, returning to their old neighborhoods and literally raping and pillaging each other, settling old scores. Westchester County, north of British occupied New York, is a wasteland. People just leave. Uh, it's it's and he's going. What's why why should I embrace this? He's ultimately hounded out of uh, Chester. He he out of despair. He goes with his oldest son to British occupied New York, where he is promptly arrested under suspicion of being an American spy. <laughs> Ultimately, uh, he gets out of jail, uh, gets on a, a vessel, and with his son, sails across towards England, shipwrecked on the Irish coast, uh, makes his way to London, publishes the 12 letters of letters from an American farmer, which is warmly received in England, largely because it casts uh, doubts about the legitimacy of the revolution. And then he makes his way to uh, France, where he tries to amend fences with his father. And in Paris, he hangs out with Benjamin Franklin, becomes uh, an expert because of his knowledge of America, and after the revolution is a French uh, emissary to America. (laughs) Thomas Jefferson attends his daughter's wedding. And it's a... (laughs) And then he's a chameleon of, of all sorts. And then, but then, guess what? Another revolution breaks out, the French Revolution, and destroys his life once again. But this was a different picture of the American Revolution. I grew up thinking it was of how a bunch of American militiamen banded together and improbably defeated the mightiest military power on earth and thereby threw off the shackles of British tyranny. But what Crevcourt described was anything but. This was a squalid civil war about people uh, trying to basically take the possessions of their former neighbors, settling. You know, this was not the revolution I had grown up with, and I vowed that someday I would try to explore that. Well, my last book was Bunker Hill. Uh, I like to write about communities under enormous stress, whether they are a whaleboat crew. Uh, in whale boats, that their whale ship has been sunk and they're reverting to survival cannibalism or uh, 102 pilgrims on, on the Mayflower being dumped in the, the, the uh, uh, wilds of what they called Plymouth. Uh, and so with uh, Bunker Hill, I was interested what happened to Boston, a, a, a community that got literally turned inside out by the revolution. Ultimately, the British were ocu- occupied the city and... and uh, Bunker, the Battle of Bunker Hill is the set piece of that book, but it was the, my introduction to George Washington. He arrives after that, and this was not the George Washington that stares at us from the $1 bill. This is not that staid pragmatist with bad teeth. This is a guy in his 40s, red-haired, fiery, by temperament, aggressive. He is not yet the defensively-minded, careful general he will become. He looks around him. He's not excited by the New Englanders he's having to uh, lead. You know, they're, they're used to town meetings and have a sense of democracy and don't like taking orders. You know, you give them an order, they say, 
fine. Let, we'll discuss it. We'll let you know if we will follow the order. This drives him insane. And he doesn't, it's underfunded. He doesn't enough have a gu- enough gunpowder. How is he going to do this? And he resolves, we've got to end this quickly. I mean, if we don't end this quickly, we have an opportunity here. Let's attack Boston. Destroy the British army. We may have to burn Boston, but it's the only way we're going to win this. And uh, three different times this proposal is brought before his council of war. And every time the other generals uh, unanimously dismiss it, saying it's insane. We don't have enough gunpowder to do this. This is not the Washington I grew up with. I had to follow this guy. What was going to happen? So how how to... pair him, who to pair him up with and get at what I was interested in uh, about the sort of dark underbelly of the revolution. Enter my mother, Mary Ann <laughs> Dennis Philbrick. My mother marched to the beat of a different drummer. For one thing, she smoked a pipe. And I have to tell you, growing up in Pittsburgh, it was something when we'd go out to dinner in a restaurant on a Friday night and both my parents would light up my brother and I would just, oh, jeez. And my mother loved to tell you exactly what she thought, particularly if she knew you were going to disagree with her. And one of her personal heroes was Benedict Arnold. And, you know, I'd go, Mom, you know, I know you're a contrarian, but, but Benedict Arnold, if someone calls me Benedict, he is the, imp- the personification of evil, the, the world's biggest traitor. What are you talking about? And she said, no, there's much more to it than that. In the beginning of the years of the revolution, he was our best general. There are reasons why this happened. And I am here before you tonight to say that mom, in large part, was right. Because I realized, yes, I'm going to pair Washington with Benedict Arnold and, uh, uh, and see where it leads. Uh, and, and so Valiant Ambition begins in the summer of 1776. The British that spring have evacuated Boston, but the empire is about to strike back, and New York is in their sights. Washington is dug into uh, the New York what we now call New York City, which is then just a little town at the end of Man- the island of Manhattan. And he's all- his army is also dug into the high ground of, of Brooklyn Heights. That will, um, that the cannons there will control anyone that sails in. But what happens that summer is 400 British vessels make their way into New York Harbor. 40,000 soldiers and sailors. That's the largest fleet That's the largest invasionary force Great Britain would ever put together until World War I. 40,000 men. That's more people than in all of Philadelphia, the largest city in North America. And there they are, right at Washington's doorstep. And he is supposed to deal with this with his undisciplined ragtag band. It does not go well. The Battle of Brooklyn is an embarrassment to Washington. He's completely outgeneraled by William Howe. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he counters that with a brilliant retreat at night uh, across the East River into New York, but soon they are flushed out of New York. Uh, ultimately, his army is forced to retreat across the breadth of New Jersey, seeking shelter on the other side of the Delaware. By this time, he's lost more than 75% of his men to desertion. This is bad. And what makes it really bad 
is that the British now, by taking New York, have a foothold on the corridor of water that reaches up due north all the way into Canada. If you go up Hudson River, which is navigable all the way to Albany, take a slight jog to Lake George, sail up Lake George, take another slight jog to the southern end of Lake Champlain at Fort Ticonderoga, and Lake Champlain is a lake of river-like dimensions. It goes straight north more than 100 miles into Canada. It is, and this is before multi-lane highways, this is before there are any good roads, and the only way to transport a large army is by water. And as Washington is losing New York, Britain is launching another large invasionary force from Canada that is about to come down that corridor of water with the hopes of taking Fort Ticonderoga, punching through to Albany, linking up with William Howe, and when they may get control of that waterway, they will have sealed off New England from the rest of the colonies, and it's game over for the United States. That all, you know, that everybody pretty much recognized that. There is one American general who is determined to make sure that does not occur. And do you know what his name is? Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, by this point, in the fall of 1776, has established himself as probably our best battlefield general. I mean, he had grown up, he had been born in Norwich, Connecticut. His, his father died an alcoholic bankrupt. Uh, Arnold would always have a chip on his shoulder, particularly when it came to money. Uh, he would be apprenticed to an apothecary in uh, New Haven, ultimately become a, a very prosperous seagoing merchant, traded in horses. His ships would go down to the Caribbean, uh, to the to St. Lawrence. He knew, he knew Quebec. He knew Montreal. He understood how all of this worked in a geographic way. And, and when he heard of Lexington and Concord, he said, we've got to get Fort Ticonderoga. That's absolutely critical. So he goes to Boston, talks to the, the um, leaders there. They send him on that mission, and he runs into Ethan Allen, who it turns out also has the same idea. And side by side, Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen stride into Fort Ticonderoga and take it. Uh, as Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys are getting drunk on the British liquor supply, Arnold commandeers a loyalist privateer, sails up... Lake Champlain to the northern edge where there is a British, small British base, takes that, and now America has control of Lake Champlain, and Arnold does it. But in typical Arnold fashion, Arnold was a man of great vision, strength, uh, charisma, and passion, but he had absolutely no tact. And it was no, never took very long until he was arguing with everyone around him. And uh, even though he had done all this, it was, uh, it was determined that he should be reassigned. Uh, he ends up in Boston uh, in the summer of 1775, soon after Washington arrives. Washington is mired in what's known as the Siege of Boston, but there's opportunities to the north. The British have been flat, caught flat-footed in, in Canada. As one general goes up that water, quarter of water and takes Montreal, Washington is going to send a small army on a very difficult mission to go up the Penobscot River of what we now call Maine uh, against the current um, in fall as it's getting colder and colder and go overland through the miriest, uh, wettest, 
uh, backwoods of Maine you can believe and get Quebec. That's the hope. Well, um, and off Arnold goes, leading this, with an incredible small army. There's Daniel Morgan, the, the famous Virginia rifleman, and his riflemen are with him. A young Aaron Burr is part of this army, and up they go. The boats that were supposedly built for them begin to fall apart. Uh, it starts to freeze. They run out of food. People start to desert. People die of, of starvation. I mean, it is, this is, to this day, this is backwoods Maine. My wife and I followed Arnold's trail, and at one point, you know, there were just no other crossroads, and every time we came to a crossroad, it was, na- crossroad, it was named Arnold. Apparently, he was the last person to have gone <laughs> that way. Eventually, he staggers out of the wilderness, and um, he attempts to take Quebec in a snowstorm. It's uh, unsuccessful because largely because he is uh, quickly injured terribly in the left leg, but Arnold, everyone, the, what he has achieved just by getting his army there is incredible, and he is dubbed the American Hannibal. And uh, you know, so he's doing pretty darn well, and there he is on Lake Champlain, and he now has before him a seemingly impossible task. The British force coming down has two schooners. They have spent a month building a three-masted man-of-war, the kind of ship you see on the open ocean. They have 20 gunboats. They have thousands of soldiers, a large native contingent, and this armada is about to sail down Lake Champlain. What does Arnold have? Well, he spent the summer frantically putting, building a navy because we just didn't... We had a few schooners, but... Uh, he built these gun- these boats uh, that are basically 80-foot rowboats with sails on them, <laughs> equipped with cannons. There are no... Uh, anybody who's a, 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 um, uh, a sailor is on privateers trying to make money. So he's got, for his crew, he's got a bunch of landlubbers. He's got 15 vessels, and he's supposed to go against, you know, the, the most powerful British uh, Navy in the world. He has a plan. He knows that if he meets the British on the open lake, they'll just blow him to pieces. So he, counterintuitively, he hides his little force inside uh, Valcour Island. This is just a few miles below what's now Plattsburgh on the west side of the Lake Champlain. And he lines them up at the mouth of Valcour Bay, waits till the British sail past, and then once they've sailed past, he sticks his head out basically, waves, here we are. And the British say, aha, we've got them trapped. Arnold, however, is the one who has laid the trap. They now have to sail against the wind, and all those big vessels can't get there. This, uh, Arnold has come up with a way to eliminate the, his, his biggest concern, and it's only those little gunboats that make it. And so Arnold's is lined up at the, at the, at the edge of Valcor Bay, the, the gunboats line up 200 yards below him, and for four hours they just blast away at each other. Arnold's in the center at the cannon. He sends one cannonball whistling over the head of the British general. I mean, and Arnold's in his element. He's giving orders. There's gun smoke everywhere. Night comes, and Arnold has fought them to a draw. But what do they do now? 
And now, with Arnold, um, his aggression, his risk-taking, it was always hard to tell whether he was doing it because it was the best military thing to do or because it burnished his reputation as a swashbuckling hero. It's always a little hard to tell. And his, you know, he, he tells his, his, um, his subordinates, we're going to escape by sailing through the British tonight. And they go, what the heck are you talking about? He said, hey, when it was getting dark, well, for one thing, we're all deaf. No one can hear anything, including them. (laughs) And as night came, I noticed that the most inner British uh, vessel had some space between it and the trees on shore. One by one, we're going to go through with a candle on the stern so that only the person behind them can see it, and we're going to do this. The next morning, the British wake up. The mist clears on Valcor Bay. They realize they are guarding an empty bay. They look behind them, and seven miles down Lake Champlain is Arnold, sailing as fast as he can towards Fort Ticonderoga. The British ultimately catch up to him, but he sends the rest of his fleet on to Fort Ticonderoga, where he, he basically has his own last stand. It's him against the two schooners, that man of war, and pretty after two hours of, of fighting, his, the hull of his vessel is so riddled with bullet holes and cannonball holes that he's sinking. He rams it up onto the shore of, of what's now known as Arnold Bay in Vermont, gets his men on the high ground overlooking his vessel, lights the fuse, and it blows up in the face of the British. He leads his men down the shore of Lake Champlain to Fort Ticonderoga. At 4 a.m., they stagger in, and as Horatio Gates will write to General Philip Schuyler, no American general has had more hairbreadth escapes than Benedict Arnold. (laughs) Meanwhile, the British go, what the heck was that? (laughs) They sail down to Fort Ticonderoga, and they say, wow, if we get that kind of uh, resistance now, what is it going to be like when we go after the fort? It's getting close to November when the lake freezes. What if we postpone this till next year? (laughs) They decide to retreat back to Canada. Arnold has done it. He has saved America in the fall of 1776. And so Valiant Ambition begins with George Washington, the one man destined to be capable of holding this country together at his absolute lowest, and with Benedict Arnold, uh, the man destined to to determine that it is his destiny to tear that country apart at his absolute highest. And and over the next four years, uh, we watch as their careers take very different arcs. Now, I thought George Washington had enough trouble fighting the British. But as it turns out, most of his energies, it seems, were dedicated towards dealing with his own officers and his own government. I hate to say it, but a dysfunctional Congress is nothing new. (laughs) He's retreating across New Jersey. Uh, You know, his men are deserting around him. He's on his way uh, to the Delaware. When uh, a letter comes to him for his... his, uh, adjutant general, uh, a young Philadelphia lawyer named Joseph Reed. He was not at headquarters, so Washington decides to open it, as he normally would do, thinking it's official business. He, he realizes quickly it's something else. It turns out Joseph Reed, all the, at, uh, at this darkest hour, has been in correspondence with Charles Lee, 
uh, a, uh, the second-ranking American general, former British general, and they, what they're, he's complaining about is Washington for his indecisiveness for, uh, and suggesting that Charles Lee, come winter, lead a new army and perhaps change what's going on. Washington realizes the man upon whom he depends the most, is closest to him, has been basically talking trash behind his back. Now, this is when I realized that Washington might be a fine general, but he was an absolute brilliant politician. What does he do? He reseals the letter and writes a short cover note. Uh, to Joseph Reed. This came to you while you were out of headquarters, assuming it was, uh, it was official business. I opened it as I always would, realizing it was something else. I return it to you with my apologies, George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> he leaves Reed to twist in the icy emptiness of his withheld wrath, knowing full well that Washington knows everything. I mean... Just brilliant. Okay, and then we come to that terrible night, the Christmas Eve, where um, Washington is about to cross the Delaware. The weather is horrible. Uh, it is a hurricane, except it's, it's sleet turning into snow. Delaware River is chock-a-block full of ice, and Washington has this desperate plan to go across the Delaware River, surprise the Hessians. These are professional soldiers in Trenton, and somehow gain a victory. Um, he, um, it's, this is real, and it's at that night, as he's about to do this, um, and be, by the way, by this time, because of Arnold's brilliant performance at Valcour Island, Horatio Gates and Arnold have come down from New York, have joined up with Washington's army, bringing 500 soldiers that will then be on this desperate uh, attempt. Uh, are the, by this time, the British have taken Newport. Washington assigns Arnold to go to Rhode Island in an attempt to retake that, that, that port. And he asks Horatio Gates, who in Boston, when they were in Boston, had served as his adjutant general, if he would accompany him on this, this attempt to take Trenton. Why, uh, Horatio Gates says, I don't feel too well. I think I'm going to go to Philadelphia to seek medical attention. Uh, that, the night Arnold, Washington's about to get on his horse and ride to the ferry landing, he gets a letter from Horatio Gates. By this time, uh, the Continental Congress have left Philadelphia and moved to Baltimore because they're fearful the uh, British Army is about to cross the Delaware and, and take that city. And Charles Lee, the second-ranking Amer American general, has been captured by the British, meaning that Horatio Gates is next in line. And Horatio and Gates informs Washington that even though he doesn't feel very well, he's going to go to Baltimore. Washington realizes that in the very likely event that this attempt to take Trenton misfires, Horatio Gates is positioning himself to take command of the Continental Army. And then Washington pulls off the greatest comeback of all time. Not only does he, you know, he wins the first Trenton, there's another Battle of Trenton that's even more amazing, uh, which he, um, you know, Anyways, there's the victory at, at Princeton, and you'd think this would catch him some slack from the Continental Congress. Well, no, and, <laughs> and for one reason, they have their reasons. Okay, just a little bit of world history here. Every time there had been a revolution in the history of the world when a republic was the attended result, 
uh, it would go terribly wrong. Uh, in the chaos following the revolution, the civil government would be imp- find it impossible to reestablish order, and the leader of the military would establish a dictatorship, and that's the end of it. Caesar had done it in Rome. Cromwell had done it in England with the English Civil War. Napoleon would do it after the French Revolution. And so congressional delegates were understandably concerned that this could happen in the American instance. And so they kept Washington on a very tight leash. And, uh, and, and, you know, and con- this was a Congress that did not have enough power to do much of anything effectively other than second-guess Washington. They, did, they could not tax the American people directly, and so he, did, he never had the funds he needed, but they did insist that they would determine his major generals. The, the men upon the so officers upon whom he depends the most, and and at this point, and this winter of 1777, Benedict Arnold was our highest-ranking brigadier general with bar none the best record. But the Congress has decided that this will be a political appointment, and each state will get two major generals. And since Arnold's home state of Connecticut already has two major generals. This means Arnold will be overlooked for promotion and five brigadier generals ranking below him will be elevated past him to major general. When Washington hears this, he can't believe it because he hasn't been informed of this new policy. He immediately writes Arnold saying, look, I don't know what's going on here, but don't do anything rash. Arnold, to his credit, he's very upset, um, uh, does not just quit. Uh, Many American officers would do that when treated in a similar fashion. John Stark, the hero of Bunker Hill from from, uh, New Hampshire, would just quit and return to New Hampshire when when treated in this way. He hangs in there, but this begins his his beginning to question, why am I doing this if my own people, my own government, have to seem, seem to have no understanding of what this is costing me and my country? Fast forward a year to October of 1777. The battle set up by Arnold's uh, stand uh, performance at Valcour Island has come to fruition, the Battle of Saratoga. Gentleman John E. Burgoyne, the British general, has come down that watery corridor, taken Fort Ticonderoga, and crossed the Hudson and is knocking on Albany's door. But it's not going well for the British. And it's, it's not the American soldiers that are a problem. It's the American wilderness. Um, they can't sustain a, a, a supply line all the way into Canada. And, and Burgoyne's soldiers, are be, even though they're moving very quickly, are beginning to starve. If they don't take Albany and link up with William Howe's, uh, the British in, in uh, New York, they're going to have to surrender, and, uh, and uh, it's getting desperate. Meanwhile, thousands of, of New England militiamen are crowding into Saratoga. Uh, Washington sends from down in Phil- uh, the Philadelphia area, where he is now besieged by William Howe, who is in the process of about to take sh- uh, Philadelphia. Washington has given um, uh, the Northern Army uh, Daniel Morgan and his Virginia riflemen. And who is the commanding officer at Saratoga? Horatio Gates. Gates has never led a large army in battle, is a defensively-minded general, some might say timid. Uh, During the two battles of Saratoga, he would never make it to the battlefield. (laughs) 
Um, and uh, in the first battle, the Battle of Freeman's Farm, it is Arnold's soldiers that deliver a devastating blow to the British. Uh, and um, from the beginning, Gates is fearful that Arnold will steal some of his thunder. And in his official account of that battle, he does not mention Arnold by name. Arnold is furious. They have a meeting. Gates, who knows Arnold pretty well, knows exactly what buttons to push. Arnold is, you know, cannot control those passions. They have a violent argument, and he's kicked out of the Northern Army. Gates says, why don't you go down and help out Washington? Uh, uh, you have no standing here. Arnold doesn't leave. He goes to his headquarters, brewed. Some say he drank. Uh, some say he even took opium. But when the climactic Battle of Bemis Heights breaks out, he bursts out of his, his uh, quarters, and even though he has no standing in the army, appears on the battlefield. He's a highly charismatic figure, and there are many soldiers willing to follow him just about anywhere. Night is coming on. They have, the British have been driven into their redoubts, and uh, you know, it's become a stalemate when Arnold sees a way to end it. On the British right, uh, on the redoubt, there is a sally port in the back. That's the entrance into the redoubt. If he can ride through two lines of fire and penetrate there while other Americans take it from the front, they will have done it. Off he goes through two lines of fire, riding his horse. Uh, hell-bent, he comes through the sally port on his horse, raises his sword, and commands them to surrender. A German soldier raises his musket, fires. The musket ball goes through his left thigh, fracturing the bones of his thigh, kills his horse, which collapses onto his injured leg. He's just lying there as American soldiers swarm into the redoubt. One of the first to his side is a young New Hampshire officer, Henry Dearborn, who has been with him since Quebec. He says, are you badly hurt? Arnold says, it's the same leg, you know, that he said, in the same leg. And he says, I wish the musket ball had gone through my heart. Because what he realized was, you know, his his leg was destroyed by this musket ball, and his physicality was everything for him. I mean, this guy was an athlete, incredible endurance. But what really troubled him was, you know, who, they were going to win this, and who was going to be the hero of Saratoga? Horatio Gates. And that's, he would be known for the rest of his life, Horatio Gates would, as the hero of Saratoga. It would be more than uh, Arnold would, uh, the doctors would want to take off his leg. He would refuse. Uh, they would try to put the pieces of his uh, fractured thigh uh, t- bone together. In, and stuff it into what's known as a fracture box, a kind of 18th century version of a medieval torture device. Um, he would be uh, confined to a bed in Albany for months um, uh, with uh, splinters of bone weeping out through his wounds. Uh, in February, they have to reset the leg. Um, it would be more than a year before he could walk unassisted, more than two years before he could ride a horse. And he brooded uh, when uh, uh, Lafayette, the young French general who's fighting for America, comes to Albany. Uh, Arnold says to him, Horatio Gates is the greatest poltroon in the world. Um, you know, and his, the Continental Congress finally decides to restore him to the rank he should have had. Uh, but from uh, Arnold's uh, perspective, it's too little too late.
Meanwhile, Washington has been having his own trials. He's now he's lost Philadelphia to the British, who have taken that city, and it's now that terrible Winter of Valley Forge. And you know, there are members of Continental Congress who say, wait a minute, Washington suffered the losses at Brandywine and Germantown. We've lost our capital. And look at the hero of Saratoga to the north. Is it time to change horses here? Do we need a new commander of the Continental Army? Historians call it the Conway Cabal. Conway was an uh, Irish officer uh, who had been part of the French Army, who was now part of the American Army, and gotten involved in a shadowy attempt uh, by members of Congress to, to uh, replace Washington with Horatio Gates. It, goes nowhere, largely because of Washington's incredible political skills. And in fact, he emerges from that terrible winter stronger than he's ever been. And uh, he will be, uh, remain unchallenged for the rest of, of the revolution. And guess what? By April of 1778, France has come on into this conflict on our side. Uh, why? Largely because of the great victory at Saratoga. And uh, this means that the British are in bad shape. My gosh, this, what was a colonial rebellion is now a world war. We must consolidate our forces. We have to now evacuate uh, Philadelphia and move all our troops into New York. As that's happening, Philadelphia becomes a city under uh, uh, in chaos. The, the British leave, the Patriot residents return and are very angry with those uh, of their fellow inhabitants who had remained. And it is a seething civil war in miniature in Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, uh, there is, uh, and the, the civil government of Pennsylvania does not help. And a, a prosecuting attorney uh, uh, makes sure... Uh, pursues several residents for treason uh, during this British occupation, and a Quaker is ultimately hanged on the common of Philadelphia. Um, this so is so abhorrent to all of Philadelphia's residents, including the Continental soldiers there, that petitions with thousands of names are, are put in, but the, the prosecuting attorney pushes it through. And guess who that attorney is? Joseph Reed, Washington's former adjutant general who eventually becomes the equivalent of governor of Pennsylvania um, and uh, uh, pushes his own state's agenda often uh, 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 in the face of what is best for the Continental Congress in the country. He at one point threatens to uh, uh, refuse the use of the, the state's wagons for the Continental Army. You know, these kinds of things. He's a very divisive figure. Meanwhile, Philadelphia needs a military commander to try to control the situation. You need someone of immense tact. Washington, trying to do Arnold a favor, appoints Benedict Arnold, military <laughs> governor of Philadelphia. It is a nightmare. Um, you know, he, he is a lightning rod for controversy. Uh, uh, he, he and Joseph Reed despise one another. Reed uh, conducts a virtual witch hunt. Hey, and Arnold is no choir boy. He has decided since he's lost his personal fortune to the cause and no one's willing to pay him back, he's going to have some somewhat shady business deals to try to help uh, get, uh, bring back uh, things. But it's, it's just a horrible situation. But you know what? Arnold has fallen in love. He's 36, a widower, 
with three young boys. And he meets 18-year-old, half his age, Peggy Shippen, a, a woman of the equivalent of Philadelphia aristocracy, a family of loyalist leadings. She was very happy during the British occupation of Philadelphia, hobnobbing with the British officers, particularly one very handsome officer named uh, Major John Andre. And Arnold and Peggy get married, and within a month, Arnold, who has become increasingly disaffected with the way things are going, sends his first letter of interest, shall we say, to the British in New York, ultimately establishing a correspondence with the new British spy chief, Major John Andre. Now, I will not go into the espionage tale that occupies the next year. That's why you've got to get the book. <laughs> But it is just incredible. You know, it's, it's, the, it's letters that have, you know, with, the, uh, you know, that have to be decoded. Peggy is very involved in all this. Let's fast forward to the summer of 1780. The revolution has cratered from the American perspective. We had a revolution because we didn't want to pay taxes to the British. We apparently do not want to pay the taxes required to fund the army required to fight for our independence, and Washington's army is withering on the vine. They do, you know, they're not enough men because no one gets paid. They have uh, no provisions, then no uniforms. You know, it's just all beginning to fall apart. It seems as if the American people have turned their backs on the promise they made to one another with the Declaration of Independence. Arnold, by this point, has uh, become commander of West Point, the new uh, fortress at that quarter of water on the Hudson River. There are 3,000 soldiers stationed there. There's provisions, there's ammunition, cannons. If this should fall to the British at this perilous time, this could be it. Arnold, uh, by, uh, by September of 1780, is on the verge of surrendering West Point to the British. The British have already loaded the soldiers into ships at New York and are ready with the next tide to sail up for West Point. But first, there has to be a, a face-to-face meeting between Andre and Arnold. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> they meet at midnight on the banks of the Hudson River. Andre has been delivered up the river by the most appropriately named British vessel of all time, the HMS Vulture. <laughs> Arnold gives him documents related to the taking of West Point, which Andre stuffs into the sock, into his stocking, uh, inside his boot. He's about to be rowed back out to the vulture when at dawn, unknown to Arnold, one of his officers has brought a cannon to the end of Teller Point, fires on that British vessel, forcing her down the river. Andre doesn't have a way to get back to British-occupied New York. He must wait till nighttime he, he disguises himself, he's transported across the river on, on the ferry, and now he has to make his way through uh, the neutral ground of Westchester County, that haunted wasteland I was telling you about, where, you know, this is the, the landscape of uh, Rip Van Winkle and the Headless Horseman. You don't know who you are going to run into uh, when you're in the neutral ground, and it's at dawn. Andre is on a horse. He's just a few miles from making it to 
Kingsbridge and into Manhattan when three men step out of the shadows, each with a musket. One of them has a Hessian jacket on, which makes Andre think that these guys are, are, are loyalists. And he says, are you from the lower part, meaning are you from New York? And they say, yes. And he says, well, great. I am a British officer on very important business, and I need to ride right through. And they say, get off that horse. <laughs> Turns out these are American militiamen. The one with the Hessian jacket had been imprisoned in New York just a few days before, and a sympathizer had given him that jacket to aid in his escape. And here he was. They search Andre find those documents uh, that, uh, that Arnold had given him. They know Andre's a spy, but they don't know if he stole those documents. You know, they have their suspicion. Who knows? So what happens is, and once again, you can't make this stuff up, two messages are sent. One to Arnold, who's at his headquarters, a mile below West Point on the east side of the Hudson. Another to George Washington, who is at that moment on his way to meet up with Arnold at his headquarters. Who will get the message first? The Met Arnold is the one who gets the message first. Uh, he rushes up to Peggy, it's morning, uh, who's uh, in bed with their infant son and says, I'm out of here. He runs down the stairs to the dock at Hudson, and the Hudson gets on his barge, orders his men to row down the river and he escapes aboard the vulture into to British-occupied New York and is ultimately made a brigadier British general. <laughs> Just a few hours after his escape, Washington arrives at Arnold's headquarters. By, he's with a who's who of, of his officers. There's Hamilton. There's Lafayette. There's Henry Knox, the artillery chief and, and a former bookseller. <laughs> and they get the message that um, of what's going on. Hamilton gives it to Washington. Washington suddenly realizes when he puts the pieces together that Arnold, one of his, be his best generals, has, has betrayed him. He turns to Lafayette, who has become a kind of surrogate son to him, and says, whom can we trust now? It is just an absolute body blow to him. Andre is ultimately hanged as a spy. And what is in the tragic irony of Arnold's life, what happens is, you know, we're at our lowest ebb, but the news that Arnold has attempted to betray his country is that lightning bolt that America needs. He is burned in effigy, not only in Philadelphia, but in towns up and down the eastern seaboard. And people begin to realize, whoa, what's going on here? The real enemy is not Great Britain, it's us. And this war is ours to lose. The British will ultimately send uh, that winter, just in a few months, they send Arnold down to Virginia. He quickly proves that he is the best general on both sides. He has the tidewater in flames, has uh, Governor uh, Thomas Jefferson running from Monticello. Our Washington, you know, this is Washington's home really angry, sends Lafayette with orders not to kill Arnold, but to capture him and hang him as a spy. And what this does is begin the whole movement of troops that in less than a year's time climaxes with Cornwallis, who replaces Arnold, uh, being trapped at Yorktown.
And so I think you can argue that without Arnold betraying his country, you perhaps do not have an independent United States. And I would like to end by reading a, a, a brief a, a couple of, of uh, a brief, brief section from my epilogue that talks about our, the impact of Arnold not only on the revolution but on our sense of who we are as Americans. The United States had been created through an act of disloyalty. No matter how eloquently the Declaration of Independence had attempted to justify the American rebellion, a residual guilt hovered over the circumstances of the country's founding. Arnold changed all that. By threatening to destroy the newly created republic through, ironically, his own betrayal, Arnold gave this nation of traitors the greatest of gifts, a myth of creation. The American people had come to revere George Washington, but a hero alone was not sufficient to bring them together. Now they had the despised villain, Benedict Arnold. They had a snake in the garden. They knew both what they were fighting for and against. The story of America's genesis could finally move beyond the break with the mother country and start to focus on the process by which 13 former colonies could become a nation. As Arnold had demonstrated, the real enemy was not Great Britain, but those Americans who sought to undercut their fellow citizens' commitment to one another. Whether it was Joseph Reed's willingness to promote his state's interests at the expense of what was best for the country as a whole, or Arnold's decision to sell his loyalty to the highest bidder, the greatest danger to America's future came from self-serving opportunism masquerading as patriotism. At this fragile stage in the country's development, a way had to be found to strengthen rather than destroy the existing framework of government. The Continental Congress was far from perfect, but it offered a start to what could one day be a great nation. By turning traitor, Arnold had alerted the American people to how close they had all come to betraying the revolution by putting their own interests ahead of their newborn countries. Already, the name Benedict Arnold was becoming a byword for that most hateful of crimes, treason against the people of the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to a podcast of Knox County Public Library. To hear other episodes, please visit our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.